streamingandnewspress.com. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Money Talk. I'm Neil Kreisel and Diane Duvernay are your hosts every week right here on AM 1290, FM 96.9, and streaming at AM 1290, KZSB.com. We're repeated at 11 and on Saturdays at 6. We're brought to you by American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people in Santa Barbara at Figueroa and Anacapa Streets and in Montecito's Upper Village. And Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm in Santa Barbara, providing its clients with the personal care and attention of a small independent firm, coupled with the vast resources of a major financial institution. Hi, Neil. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm just wondering whether the government's going to shut down. So I know. You told, you, you told me before the show you have some inside information about what's going to happen. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I say you know, stay calm, that the market clearly is, uh, is pricing in that they're going to reach a deal. It went up today, right? It went up today. That's true. So uh, do we have a guest today? We do. We're thrilled to have with us Jeff Devine, president of American Riviera Bank. Jeff, thanks so much for taking the time today. Really happy to be here for another Money Talk with Neil and Diane. Uh, well, thanks, Jeff. And the first article is from today's Wall Street Journal, and it's entitled College Students Embrace Wild Market Ride. And what the article is about is the proliferation of investing classes in universities. And the article focuses on both the University of Chicago and NYU and Yale, and it is about how um, the uh, popularity of these investment clubs have been on the rise and how students really uh, embrace the whole idea of testing their uh, investment acumen uh, during uh, during school. Uh, the problem with this is that if you have any type of club or organization that is driven by semester results, um, you're not really making investments, you're you're trading. And, you know, when I went to school, and one of the schools, by the way, in this article is where I got my MBA, we discussed uh, long-term investment, Graham and Dodd type investing, and uh, the idea that trading is really a, a, a not a particularly productive game. And here, this article, without any type of negativity, is saying what a wonderful way this is to train people. And it really sort of, you know, uh, highlights the craziness, whether it's the MEM investors of the young people or the lack of thinking about investing through a portfolio lens. Uh, here, we're just talking about rewarding students for very short-term gains. Yeah, that does seem counterintuitive to what what really should be happening is you buy good companies and hold them for long term. You know, it 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 kind of plays into this whole day trading, you know, phenomenon. And especially the, the, if kids are tied to it. The next article is also from today's Wall Street Journal. And uh, I think you're going to like the title of this article is Do Neurotics Buy Less Stock? And uh a serious study just came out that found that uh, neuroticism 
um, is correlated with investors' belief about the stock market and the likelihood of equities going up. Uh, for example, an investor ranking in the middle of the neurotic scale might expect an annual stock market premium of about 6%, but investors at the top of the scale are only likely to expect a 4% return. And um, the idea is that in order, well, I don't know what the idea is, but if this were true, uh, I would be the richest guy in America because I, I'm ex I am extremely, I'm very neurotic uh, and it really hasn't done me well. But, you know, here we go with a, another kind of crazy article in the Wall Street Journal uh, about how neurotic you are does affect how you view the stock market. Um, the next article is kind of similar to this, and this is from the New York Times four days ago, and it's Bed Bath & Beyond still has investor fans. Now, we all know that Bed Bath & Beyond has filed for bankruptcy. And not only that, but the board of Bed Bath & Beyond has told uh, investors that they can expect a complete wipeout of their equity. And yet, and this is what the article says, that more than 9% of all pink uh, pink sheet trades pink sheets are uh from my old days in the in the market are non uh uh nasdaq over the counter stocks basically today penny stocks that they they have been up dramatically because mem investors are buying uh the stock of bed bath and beyond despite the fact that the board has said this stock is going to be worthless it's just unbelievable it's like you can't make that up. No, you can't make it up. Um, the next article was from this weekend's uh, Wall Street Journal, and it says Fed's Michelle Bowman warns against broad over overhaul of the of banking rules. And it begins by saying a Federal Reserve official cautioned policymakers against undertaking a broad revamp of the regulatory framework facing small and regional banks, saying complex new rules could hasten the consolidation of the banking industry and potentially push more activities outside of the regulated banking system. And what she's saying is rather than come up with some very uh, cumbersome rules for banks, they ought to just uh, take a look at what happened during these failures and try to move around the edges and you know not push uh, banks to the point where it's too uneconomical to manage th themselves and we end up with more Morgan guarantees. Well, I think that's definitely the case. I mean, it sounds like it makes sense to me is that you can't have a one size fits all approach hmm. to regulating banks. And certainly the the systematically important or systematically risky banks certainly deserve uh, a heavier hand from the regulators than the smaller banks do. That's generally what we've seen with with tiered red regulation at times. Yeah. And what happened uh, in 19 in, in 2008 is uh the the rules really were very cumbersome for not only the big banks but the small banks particularly mm -hmm. because they didn't have the you know the the revenue stream to amortize all those costs and that's why they had to reduce some of the regulations in retrospect yeah that's what happens is that only the biggest banks can really afford to have the massive legal and compliance teams available to sort out all the rules and so it tends to benefit the larger banks and hurt the smaller banks um, the next article is from, again, this weekend's Wall Street Journal, and it's from uh, Jason Swike, uh, the intelligent investor columnist. And um, he is 
pointing out, and we've talked about this before, how if you look at the Dow, which has been which has increased 1.2 percent year, 1.2 percent this year, um, you miss the point that the da- that the S and P 500 has gained more than nine percent, and the reason for this difference is that the Dow, which was uh, uh, created uh, over a hundred years ago before we had computers, is simply based on the price of each share of stock rather than total market value. So um, the most important stock in the Dow is United Healthcare because its stock is trading at four hundred and eighty dollars. Whereas Apple stock is traded at $175, it's weighted half as much as United Health. So what you have is a, a crazy calculation that makes looking at the Dow, which unfortunately most people do because it's always the first thing in the newspaper or on television, is the way it's calculated makes it fairly irrelevant. And uh, the point that is is dramatically made by if you um, weighted the Dow by uh, the same system that uh, S&P does, uh, Apple would be 25% of the Dow and it would have had a dramatic effect on changing the relative performance of the Dow. And you know, it begs the question of, you know, when you look at the S&P 500 companies, you really, it's up eight, and change this year, you only really have a few of those companies making money and the rest of them are flat, if not down. And so it begs the question of, does the, is the index truly representative when it's overweighted one particular company as much as say Apple is in the S&P 500? You know, it's a good point. We've talked about this before, but this has been true for a hundred years that mostly uh, all of the gains uh, every year has been from very few stocks. Um, and it sort of makes it, uh, to, for me at least, at least, explicit that stock pickers really have a tough road to to, to, to drive because uh, if it's only you know five or 10 stocks that make the difference in a performance of an index, you really gotta be smart to pick those five or 10 stocks. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back. When you're farming a vineyard, you have 180 days to bring about a certain quality for the eventual wine. With a bank like American Riviera Bank, it's really comforting to have a partner that understands the agricultural landscape. Having people that communicate quickly with us, that are able to be flexible in how we're doing our business on a day-to-day basis has been a real strength in what we bring to our client base. You can bank on American Riviera. We do. American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. It's a fact. Successful wealth management is built on strategies that focus on the big picture, take a long-term view, and establish deep and valued relationships. Hello, I'm Diane Duva, founding partner at Arlington Financial Advisors, Santa Barbara's trusted family guide, empowering you to make more informed and confident decisions. At Arlington Financial Advisors, we bring order and balance to your financial life by monitoring and managing risk so you can focus on your work, family, and enjoying the moment. We are a fully independent firm offering strategic financial planning, estate and tax planning, and private money management. Our plans and portfolios are handcrafted using a rigorous and disciplined approach, supported by a consistent yet highly personalized client experience. 
Our clients look to Arlington Financial Advisors as a home away from home, a comfortable place to protect what they've accomplished while they prepare for what comes next. Please visit ArlingtonFinancialAdvisors.com or call me, Diane Duva, at 805-699-7300. Why was the basketball court all wet? Because the players kept dribbling on it. The dad joke. Corny, groan-worthy, but also one of the simplest ways to share a moment with your kids. What did the buffalo say when he dropped his son off for school? Bye, son. So take a moment to make your kid laugh, because dad jokes rule. Make your kid laugh today. Go to fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, a comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. And we can be reached at 805-564-1290, or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. So if you're just joining us, we have the pleasure of having the president of American Riviera Bank, Jeff Devine, with us today. Jeff, thanks so much for making the time. It's great to be here. So since the last time we've talked, there's been extreme turmoil in the banking system, particularly for regional banks. What's the difference between a regional bank and a community bank? Sure. I know there sometimes is a little bit of confusion over this, but where I like to make the distinction would be that community banks generally have about $30 billion in assets and under. And uh, so you could take a lot of the local banks here in Santa Barbara. You could take Montecito Bank and Trust. That's a little bit north at $2 billion. You have American Riviera Bank and Community West. They're both a little north of a billion. The systematically important banks at a trillion and up in assets. So that leaves a really big segment covered by regional banks, maybe between 30 billion and a trillion. Um, and that certainly has been the area uh, that a lot of banks have been in a focus on. The difference also, I would say, is relationship. I think it's a difficult spot to be a regional bank because you're not big enough to be systematically important. But at the same time, too, you're probably not small enough to have an individual relationship with your client. Um, you know, community banks do 60% of the small business loans across the country, 80% of the agricultural loans. Um, just to give you a quick example of American Riviera Bank, about half of the small business loans that American Riviera Bank makes are to businesses with less than $1 million in annual revenue. Um, 40% of our employees serve on boards of nonprofits. Last year, it was 3,200 hours that those employees put out into the community and about $400,000 in donations and sponsorships last year uh, went out into the community. That's really the difference maybe between a community bank and a regional bank. Yeah, wow. does, does the fact that a, a community bank by definition serves the community that they're in. And so there's a risk that you won't have a diversified pool of, of customers because they're all sort of in the same business, you know, which was mm, the problem. Interesting point. It was the SVS problem with all of the, you know, the tech people. 
Yeah, I would say it's a little different, though, because you're right. I mean, a community bank is going to tend to be geographically um, focused, right? For example, a bank like American Riviera Bank serves the central coast of California. So maybe from a geography standpoint, but um, really Silicon Valley Bank, it was more of the interconnectivity of their actual deposit base being, you know, venture funded companies, PE backed companies and the firms that had invested in those companies. Whereas, you know, most community banks are a reflection of their community. So they're going to have all sorts of diverse clients um, that don't represent a major portion of their client base. You would have accountants and lawyers and contractors and individuals and all that type of stuff among the, the client base of a community bank. Yeah, you basically have the breadth of it, of the economy as as clients, as opposed mm -hmm. to Valley Bank, which had all technology companies going in. Right, right, and we didn't. I don't think anyone realized just how interconnected their client base was until we started hearing the stories of what happened. Let's talk about them for a minute. You know, do you think their problems, um, and the same with First Republic for that matter? were management driven or were they really beyond their control? I think that's a great question. I, I do think it was a convergence. It was somewhat of a perfect storm of management decisions, the business models that they chose. And then, you know, maybe the more current aspect of social media and online banking and how easy it is to move money around or how easy it is to spread rumors. Um, I would say that significant mistakes were definitely made by the management teams. People have asked me, they say, well, is this criminal? Are these people going to be charged? And I said, look, they made mistakes. They made mistakes in managing the assets and liabilities of their banks that the vast majority of banks don't make. But they didn't, they didn't do anything criminally wrong that I'm aware of. They made some really bad decisions <clears throat> that played into what ended up happening. If we look at Silicon Valley Bank, I mean, we do know you know, their client base was very concentrated among those types of companies, right? Venture funded companies, private equity funded companies, and the venture capitalists and PE companies that, that put the money into those firms. Um, they made some pretty safe investment in bonds. But as we all know from listening to Money Talk, I mean, when you invest in the bond market, even if you invest in safe bonds, um, high quality bonds, when interest rates rise rapidly, you're going to end up having unrealized losses on your bond portfolio. And so, you know, the vast majority of banks across the country have bond portfolios and Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic had bond portfolios. But where they made their mistakes is that, you know, first of all, they may have gone too long with the duration of their bonds. So they were more exposed to the interest rate increase when the, when the interest rate increases did occur. Um, but also they, they made the mistake of having to sell their bonds when they were in an unrealized loss position and turn those losses into realized losses. You know, if you can avoid that, you really want to hold your bond portfolio until maturity because then you're going to be paid par. Um, so I, yeah, go ahead. I think they have some responsibility. Like I can't help but to think of those companies that had, you know, almost hundreds of millions of dollars in cash, isn't that the job of a CFO to diversify that out of one singular bank? 
Yeah, we did start to hear stories about this, which we found pretty fascinating was, you know, there were situations where, you know, you'd have companies that might have had, you know, 15 or 20 million dollars um, sitting in Silicon Valley Bank. And then it was because they had been asked by their venture capitalists to keep all of their money in Silicon Valley Bank. So it wasn't necessarily the individual treasurers at these companies that made the footfall. It may have actually been their venture capitalists that said, you will do business with our bank. And then we turn, we turn around and we find out that some of these venture capitalists had hundreds of millions of dollars tied up in their deposits at Silicon Valley Bank at the same time that their companies did. And don't you think that said, don't you think that they could have bought like institutional money markets where the underlying didn't rest on the bank's balance sheet, but rather, you know, so like it's just kind of mind boggling yeah. to me that. There definitely were opportunities for those folks to diversify. I mean, whether they diversified inside the bank, you know, by doing things to obtain more FDIC insurance, or if they had diversified by having multiple bank relationships or or money markets or treasury investments outside of the banking system. There were a lot of ways that that could have been uh, diversified and, and was not. Um, I mean, I think the other thing that was interesting about First Republic is, you know, we talk a lot about Silicon Valley Bank and how connected. Oh, uh, we're going to go to a break here. So I'll probably pause there. No, no, we're not. Go ahead. He just. Oh, okay. Okay. I was just going to say with First Republic, it might have been just a little bit different because they had an interesting business model for years. They kind of touted white glove service while training their clients to expect the lowest loan rates and the highest deposit rates. I, I grew up with that old adage that you can compete on price, quality, or service, but not all three at the same time. You kind of have to pick two. And it seems to me that First Republic was trying to be the Nordstrom's of banking uh, while training their clients to expect Walmart pricing. And ultimately, that, was, that created a problem for them because when they, they needed to raise money, Nobody wanted to buy any of their loans because their loans were at such low rates and they were such long-term loans, like 30-year mortgages at 2%. Nobody really wanted to buy any of those, so they couldn't create any liquidity by selling their loan portfolio. It wasn't as much their bond portfolio as their loan portfolio that caused a challenge for them. You know what's interesting? The uh, American Riviera Bank service uh, commitment is exactly what they were doing, but you didn't do it with uh, uh, excessive uh, interest rates as depositors. But the idea that right. when you walk into American Riviera Bank, you're treated like an important customer, you know, really differentiates your bank. Uh, I guess uh, Silicon Valley took that and uh, uh, didn't think that was enough and ended up excessively uh, rewarding their customers. So Jeff, tell us what American Riviera Bank, how have you been able to manage these difficult times? Because you know, you're you're faced with the same, you know, having a a bond underlying bond portfolio to yeah. support the bank. And you've also went through the last, you know, 18 months where interest rates have been just on a rapid, quickest ever sure. rise. So what has American Riviera Bank done in that environment? I think a few different things. Uh, first of all, our clients understand the basic business model that we're running at American Riviera Bank. I mean, they know that our deposit base is just as diverse as the community and that we don't have high dollar 
interconnected cryptocurrency or venture capital type clients. Um, we're not like the regional banks that failed, and our, our clients do understand that about us. But beyond that, you know, we we didn't we didn't go out that far in our bond portfolio. I mean, our bond portfolio is invested in high quality bonds, and we don't have a need to sell those bonds at a loss prior to maturity. So we can hold if necessary. We have other sources of liquidity, and this is some planning that some of those banks could have done a better job of. Is that if you want to increase your liquidity without selling bonds that maybe are at an unrealized loss position, a bank can go to the Federal Home Loan Bank. We all have relationships with the Federal Home Loan Bank, the Federal Reserve, or even credit lines that we maintain with other banks where we can pledge loans or pledge securities and in return receive money, uh, borrowings for the bank. Uh, so that we don't have to touch our securities portfolios. So those banks didn't do a very good job of setting up their contingent liquidity sources. Um, right now at American Revere Bank, we have over a half a billion dollars available to us in contingent liquidity based upon things that we've pledged to either the Federal Home Loan Bank or the um, Federal Reserve. So if some deposits need to leave... Like a line of credit? Is it basically like a line of credit to help our listeners understand? So if they have a, let's say, a first home sure. loan, a bank would have a, a bank would have a line of credit with the Federal Home Loan Bank that the, the bank could actually tap if it needed to, and that loan would be secured by the actual loans that the bank has made uh, as collateral. You're listening to Money Talk on AM twelve ninety and FM ninety six point nine, and we'll be right back. It's a fact. Successful wealth management is built on strategies that focus on the big picture, take a long-term view, and establish deep and valued relationships. Hello, I'm Diane Duva, founding partner at Arlington Financial Advisors, Santa Barbara's trusted family guide, empowering you to make more informed and confident decisions. At Arlington Financial Advisors, we bring order and balance to your financial life by monitoring and managing risk so you can focus on your work, family, and enjoying the moment. We are a fully independent firm offering strategic financial planning, estate and tax planning, and private money management. Our plans and portfolios are handcrafted using a rigorous and disciplined approach, supported by a consistent yet highly personalized client experience. Our clients look to Arlington Financial Advisors as a home away from home, a comfortable place to protect what they've accomplished while they prepare for what comes next. Please visit ArlingtonFinancialAdvisors.com or call me, Diane Duva, at 805-699-7300. What defines our community? Is it the people? The businesses? Is it the ranches, vineyards, and farms? We think it's all of those, and we're committed to helping our communities thrive. Homeowners existing and new, businesses looking to grow or bring up the next generation, our regional agriculture managing their seasons, crops, and livestock. We're American Riviera Bank, and we invest in our communities. In you. May is Older Americans Month. There are some 54 million people, over 16% of the population aged 65 and older in the United States. By the year 2060, that age group is predicted to reach nearly 25%, surpassing sometime after 2050 the number of Americans age 18 and younger. Currently, some 3.1 million older Americans are in the labor force. Profile America is a public service of the U.S. Census Bureau. 
Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by American Riviera Bank, making your life easier with cutting-edge technology, mobile deposits, free use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks could only dream about. So, Jeff, on the break, we were talking a little bit about the the reserves of of the underlying bond portfolios of um, banks and how Silicon Valley Bank really was leveraged themselves so much so that if they had sold off all of their bond portfolio, there would have been zero equity in the bank. What's typical for a bank to have in reserves? Sure. So, you know, your typical bank, I mean, if we think of the basic banking model of a community bank, right? Deposits come in from the community, the bank turns around and makes loans in the community. And then whatever the bank, whatever money the bank can't lend out at the moment, because it's far, it's far quicker to get a deposit than it is to get a loan, because we all know it can take a little while to get a loan, right? But the idea would be that monies that are laying around that aren't lent out, um, would be invested in a high quality bond portfolio as well as a cash position that every bank maintains on its balance sheet. The, the problem that Silicon Valley Bank had is that when they invested their money in the bond portfolio, they went out really long and they bought bonds that had really long durations or long maturity dates. And when that happened, when rates rose, uh, it turned out that if they had actually flushed all of that through, and taken the actual loss, moved it from an unrealized loss to a realized loss, it would have wiped out more than 100% of their entire capital base. So their capital would have been negative, if not zero, actually negative, if those bond losses were brought through. Most banks out in the system would have a bond portfolio where their unrealized loss would be maybe 10, 20, 25% of their capital base. So really what happened was Silicon Valley Bank got way out over the front of their skis, so to speak, in terms of the size of their bond portfolio, the duration and the loss in relation to their capital. So, Jeff, you know, during uh, with my clients, I often am getting questions about FDIC insurance and how can how should a client think of it? It's two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per person but it's not just for a person. Can you help clarify what FDI sure. is today? Sure, we like to think about FDIC insurance when you really think of the rules, it, it isn't by, by account, it really is by vesting. So what you really have to think about is, is, is it's per unique vesting. So for example, uh, an account for Jeff Devine might have 250,000 of FDIC insurance. And then an account for Diane Duva would have 250,000 of FDIC insurance. But if we decided to open up an account together, that account would have $500,000 worth of FDIC insurance. And another example I use for people is that um, you could have a trust. A lot of people have, we live in a community where a fair amount of people have wealth and maybe they have a revocable family trust. So if you have two trustees and three beneficiaries, of a trust, you could have a million five of FDIC insurance for that trust. And there's actually a really nice tool on the FDIC website that uh, estimates deposit insurance. But I tell people that, you know, if they were concerned about FDIC insurance, there definitely are a variety of ways where they can get it in their individual name and in joint accounts in family trust accounts, even payable upon death accounts, where maybe you 
nominate someone to receive funds if you pass away. Those are all distinct vestings that carry multiples of the 250. Um, so I, I think that was one thing that a lot of people didn't realize. We spent a lot of time in March when there was uh, first a level of concern among Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank in New York, um, talking to people about how to get more than 250,000 of FDIC insurance. The other way that a lot of people do it is that uh, we're part of a network called the IntraFi network where we're part of a bunch of community banks across the country, where if somebody brings us, say, a $10 million deposit, that would normally require 40 $250,000 increments, right? You'd have to go out and find 39 other banks other than American Riviera Bank to park your money and get complete insurance on the 10 million. But we can actually send it out into the network and 30, uh, 39 other banks uh, will take the $250,000 increments. So our clients can get one statement, which shows all the banks that their money is deposited into one unified statement with all the interest credits and be 100% FDIC insured. So, and we, it's a really slick program where when we send money out into the network, we actually obtain money back from the network and we're able to use that money here locally. Oh, that's, now is that unique to just community banks? Uh, there's, there are a ton of community banks across the country that are utilizing the Interfine network. You don't tend to see the larger money center banks using it uh, at all. And so given that the, the Federal Reserve did come in and backstop all depositors at Silicon Valley Bank and um, uh, Signature Bank, you, you mm -hmm. know, that led the rest of the investors out there to think, oh, well, if they're indemnifying those people having more, they'll indemnify us, right? Now, as I explain to people, is usually the first one gets bailed out and, this, and the second and third end up failing, right? So, you know. Well, I, th I think it was, it was unfortunate because there was, a, there was a misconception, right, that, you know, the, the clients of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, it was true. You know, their, their deposits were completely backstopped, no matter what the dollar amount was. Um, but then there were mixed statements made by Federal Reserve officials and, you know, FDIC officials. There was a lot of confusion about, well, what would happen if another bank were to be in a similar situation? Would those depositors have all of their deposits backed or not? And that created concern among depositors, which really wasn't necessary. I mean, people start shuffling money around and feeling like, oh, okay, well, if that's the case, then maybe I should put my money in some really big bank. Uh, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. I think there are some policy things that have been problematic. Well, right, um, because I think, yeah. this fear of banks that are too big to fail, and it gives them an unjust advantage for people who are concerned, whereas a community bank Correct. is just as safe in, in, in many regards, if not more. And there's some tools, and there's some tools that could be used to um, you know, temporarily increase deposit insurance at all banks and make it a little more clear for consumers and businesses that their deposits are safe in the short run if they are concerned about what's been going on. What we don't want to see is what's happened so far, which is it's been driving money to some degree towards the biggest, most systematically important slash risky banks in the country, the too big to fail banks. 
I don't think many people want to see them get bigger. But you're listen, in, you're, in this particular, you're, you're yeah. listening. You're listening to Money Talk on AM twelve ninety and FM ninety six point nine, and we'll be right back. On Monday, May 29th, you're invited to attend a special Memorial Day service at Goleta Cemetery. With information about some of the activities that'll take place, here's Ronnie Shabazian and Geronimo Gonzalez. First, going to start off with a presentation of colors, and then we're going to go into the welcome, which will be given by Carmen Munoz, and then we'll have the national anthem, which will be sung by Elizabeth Bryson. And then we're going to have the Pledge of Allegiance. Then we'll have the amazing keynote speaker, Mr. Drew Wakefield. Then we'll have another song sung by Elizabeth Bryson, Proud to be an American. Last year, we invited everybody to bring their pictures of loved ones who were lost during the wars, any wars. Bring a picture, bring them to the service so they're there in spirit. To learn more about the Memorial Day service at Goleta Cemetery, go to goletacemetery.com slash memorialday. That's GolitaCemetery.com slash Memorial Day. This message is for Shana, my mom who just finished her high school diploma. I wanted to say I'm so proud of you for finishing school. You told me it's never too late to achieve your dreams. I hope to make you as proud as you have made me. When you graduate, they graduate. Finish your high school diploma for you and for them. Visit FinishYourDiploma.org to find free and supportive adult education centers near you. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by American Riviera Bank, making your life easier with cutting-edge technology, mobile deposits, and free use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks could only dream about. And we can be reached at 805 564 one two nine zero, or you could email us at moneytalk twelve ninety at gmail.com. So, Jeff, before the break, we were talking about FDIC insurance, and I just wanted to ask you: Do you think that there's a chance that the FDIC will increase insurance for depositors? So, move that two hundred fifty thousand per person on up somewhere. Do you have you seen anything to that effect? There's definitely um, some proposals being discussed um, among the FDIC about different ways that that could be accomplished. I mean, the first way you could do it is you could increase the amount above 250,000. So the first thing you could do is you could just change the limit across the board, across all banks, across all deposit types. You could just say, instead of 250, it's gonna be 500, for example. Um, That's one solution that's being floated. Um, The other way you could do it is you could target specific types of accounts. You could say, for example, maybe 250 is okay for a consumer, but for businesses, it needs to be, say, 750 or a million. Um, That's being floated. And lastly, um, there was a period of time. This is kind of what I'm a fan of at the moment, given what's been going on out there is just that um, the FDIC provided unlimited insurance on transaction accounts. So think of a checking account being a transaction account. Um, unlimited FDIC insurance for a temporary time period. And this happened during the Great Recession from 2008 to 2010. There was unlimited FDIC insurance on checking accounts, basically. So if anyone happened to be concerned about FDIC insurance and whether they were going to have enough, 
They could just move the money into their transaction account at any bank across the country. And it was 100% assured. And then when that was no longer necessary, and there was an additional premium that all the banks paid to have their deposits uh, unlimited guaranteed. But then as time went on and everything calmed down, um, banks started opting out of it. And eventually it went away in 2010. I really wish that the FDIC would do that again this time. It seems to me that it would really stop all of the um, frustration and concern that there has been out there about whether some banks will have an implicit guarantee and others won't. Right. And I think it's it, that's a fair thing because the implicit guarantee is definitely skewed towards the bigger banks and, and giving a upper hand to them versus where I think more help could be given is, is definitely in that, you know, community banks like yourselves. So mm-hmm. in that one thing that, you know, you're, you're not um, concerned about for American Riviera, but this idea of short sellers and really, you know, doing a run on, on bank stocks. And I think we could, we could definitely see that in the first Republic, you know, $60 a share on a Friday and on Monday it was down to six. What do you, what do you think about that? And how much of, of a threat do you think they actually pose for banking stocks? You know, I think it's it's a real threat, of course, for any of the banks that trade on the NASDAQ or on the New York Stock Exchange, where their shares actually can be obtained and borrowed against and sold short. Um, you know, the issue is that short sellers can actually influence not just investors, but bank customers. So let's let's kind of peel that back a little bit, is that let's say a short seller decides that they don't like a particular company. Let's just say it's it's 3M. They believe that maybe 3M isn't going to have a good quarter or maybe their sales are going to fall short or they're not going to be as profitable as everybody thinks. That's going to impact whether an investor sells, you know, 3M or maybe if they already own 3M, maybe they might end up selling it, to, it might depress the price, but they don't impact 3M's customers. When a short seller basically puts out um, erroneous information or misleading information about a bank, it can have severe consequences, not only on whether investors would hold that bank stock, but also making those depositors nervous about their very own bank. And so you have a situation and you brought up with, with First Republic, it really seemed to come into play there because they were not initially Uh, One of the issues when Signature Bank failed and when Silicon Valley Bank failed, First Republic came later and it seemed like they were somewhat of a target of the short sellers. And um, it was a situation where um, the declining stock price caused clients to pull deposits and then that in turn decreased the stock price even further. It's it's a spiral uh, going downward that the short sellers could influence and benefit from. That's really problematic, in my opinion. And then, you know, if you get really Maclevate, I can't even say that, but, you know, could it have been something that, you know, Chase was trying to do because Chase was trying to buy them as they were spiraling out of control and they never agreed upon it on a price. And then they bought them out of receivership with the with the government. You know, do you think they got too good of a deal? Well, they did get a great deal. I mean, I don't, I don't know that, you know, well, I wouldn't you- speculate that Chase right. did anything. Yeah, but, but I would say, look, they did get a great deal. Um, it's interesting. JP Morgan Chase right now is arguably the largest bank in the country. 
And they really couldn't get a deal done on the open market if they wanted to. I mean, even if they found another bank that was interested in selling to them, there would be antitrust concerns. Mm. That would be the case with Citibank. It'd be the case with, with Bank of America. It'd be a, a case with any of the, the large money center banks right now. Um, but here we have a situation where First Republic gets itself into trouble and ends up failing. And all of a sudden, the biggest bank in the country gets an opportunity to buy them at pennies on the dollar and get a backing from the FDIC fund. So the FDIC fund is basically backing any loan losses that JP Morgan will receive if it ends up not collecting the entire loan or ends up selling some of the loans and takes a hit. Um, there usually is about an 80 percent backstop from the FDIC fund. So it's a pretty sweet deal when you get to acquire another bank at pennies on the dollar and get backstopped on potential loan losses for several years. Um, so I, I think if you were to ask almost anyone, uh, no matter what side of the aisle they might sit politically, how they feel about the bigger banks getting bigger, they'd probably say, we don't, we don't think that's a great idea. We kind of like our community banks. We like our regional banks. We like choice uh, and we like the service we receive from them. Um, but at the same time, too, um, you know, here's a situation where the biggest bank in the country just got bigger. You know, and so that's unfortunate. That's why I do believe this idea of maybe on, on for a temporary time period, increasing FDIC limits across the board would be very helpful. Do you think the government should have sold it off in pieces, like sent their wealth management one way, their loans another way, as opposed to selling it in its entirety? I think that that's very difficult. Um, you know, the FDIC does a pretty efficient job of either, either liquidating banks or finding a home for them at another bank. But the FDIC doesn't want to find itself in a permanent position of running a bank or having to deal with selling off a bunch of pieces. And I think the FDIC's response is generally that they want to find one home for a bank if they can. And that's what they found with J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, J.P. Morgan Chase did get an opportunity to kind of pick the assets that it wanted to pick and not assume the liabilities that it didn't want to assume. Uh, but in general, it you know the FDIC does prefer to find one bank to acquire a failed bank. Which makes sense, you're, you're, right? You're, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and 96.9 FM, and we'll be right back with our final segment. Our family has been here in over 30 years. We've always been in the hospitality business. So when we're looking for a bank to finance our deal, American Riviera actually stepped up for us. They know Santa Barbara well. Right now, we don't have any plan to open another hotel, but if we do in the future, we'll be talking to American Riviera Bank for sure. You can bank on American Riviera. We do. American Riviera Bank, bank on better. With an update on what's happening at Center Stage Theater, here's Jim Siriani. UCSB Dance Company presents Full Circle Redux, 
Just returned from their European tour, the UCSB Dance Company offers Full Circle Redux, a fresh look at the Full Circle concert which premiered in March at the Hetland Theater. The program includes three commissioned works for the UCSB Dance Company, with two composers creating original music, performing May 25th and 26th. The Adderley School presents Cabaret. Set in 1930s Berlin during the twilight of the jazz age, the musical focuses on the nightlife at the Kit Kat Club and revolves around American writer Clifford Bradshaw's relations with English cabaret performer Sally Bowles, playing May 28th and 29th at 2 and 6 p.m. For a complete list of upcoming events at Center Stage Theater, go to centerstagetheater.org. May is Asian and Pacific American Heritage Month in recognition of one of the nation's fastest growing population groups. Nearly 24 million people in the nation are of this heritage, over 7.2% of the total population. California has the largest number of these residents at over 6 million. Nearly half of Hawaii's population claims single-race Asian and Pacific American heritage. Profile America is a public service of the U.S. Census Bureau. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. And Jeff, so, you know, one of the big uh, headlines have been, as of late, has been commercial real estate is, is the next problem in the economy. How big of a threat do you think commercial real estate is to the market and to lenders and to you know you as a bank? Great question. You know we we all hear a lot about concerns about commercial real estate, maybe particularly related to office properties um, with people working from home and not necessarily going back to the office. Um, we certainly are hearing a lot more about people going back to the office. But um, there have been a lot of discussions about office properties and, and maybe about shopping malls, maybe kind of some of the shopping malls becoming redundant in, in the Internet shopping um, uh, world that we find ourselves in. But I think most people don't realize that community banks don't tend to lend on these big urban skyscrapers in downtown L.A. or New York or Chicago, these big office properties that everybody's talking about. Um, and, and, and to some degree, the big shopping malls, you know, that some of them are partially vacant across the country. Those don't tend to be the loans that community banks make. Those loans are often made by insurance companies or real estate investment trusts. Sometimes private equity groups like Blackstone will make those types of loans. And oftentimes when they do make those loans, they don't require any personal guarantees from the owner of the commercial real estate. The difference with community banks is we tend to make our commercial real estate loans locally on smaller properties. And we often require, you know, in the vast majority of cases, we're asking for the personal guarantees of the people that own that piece of property so that the bank isn't solely reliant upon the real estate. There is you know, an effort on the part of the bank and the owner to work together if there was a problem. Um, I just wanted to point out that in general, what most of us community bankers are seeing across the country is really strong credit quality. 
um, our loan books look really, really good right now. And in fact, over the last several quarters, most banks have seen their loan books just get better and better. Uh, a lot of problems have resolved themselves or a lot of ratings on loans seem to continually improve as time goes on. And so we find ourselves in this interesting situation where everybody's talking about a recession coming. And I don't doubt there might be a recession coming um, with some of the actions of the Fed. But at the same time, too, you would normally see problems starting to show up in loan books. And most of the community banks across the country are not experiencing any issues with their loan books. So that, that is unique. That does sound unique. And it also, I think it, it really, you know, sums up the point of, of us having you on, on the show today is community banks are safe. And, you know, one could argue just as safe as the too big to fails, given the diversity of businesses and, the fact that people in your community trust and, and want to be a part of. of right. I would say I'm just just for people out there, just, you know, understand the bank that you're working with. I mean, understand the nature of the business model of the bank that you work with. And if beyond that, you still want to talk about FDIC insurance and want to make sure that you're covered. The bankers out there are more than happy to talk to the customers about how to obtain more FDIC insurance through the account structuring or through using networks of banks like the IntraFi network, uh, where people are able to get their deposits insured up to really big dollar amounts. Thank you. So I would, I would just encourage, yeah. th Thank you, Jeff Devine, for being a great guest as usual. And thank you for sponsoring our show. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Money Talk, and we'll see you all next week.